0: First Kings 17. Um, you may remember that we're going through the Old Testament, the order of the books, the way the Jewish Bible was lined up. The difference is, English, our Old Testament and the Jewish Bible are the same. The only difference is the order in which they put the books. We put ours, basically, we clumped them by genre and then from... Uh, sometimes from biggest to smallest. They had a, a, a slightly more intentional order. If you want to hear more about that, um, it's on our podcast, and I, can, uh, I didn't think of finding the name beforehand, but it would have been uh, the one right before we did, I think the, one, the first one on Samuel. Um, so what we're going to do is after we finish Kings, which would be in a few more weeks, we jump to Jeremiah, because that would be the next in the Jewish Bible. So we start the prophets, and we're going to go through Jeremiah at a slightly slower pace because it's a powerful punch of a book. So we're going to finish getting the story of the kingdom, and then we go the prophets, who have all kinds of commentary about this story of the kingdom we're going through. So it's it's going to be good stuff. So um, you may notice that the message is called the Holy Hangover. Now. I don't want to see how many of you have been hungover before. You can keep that to yourselves. But hangover often makes you think of that. When actually hangover really just refers to a letdown. A hangover is a letdown after you have some sort of excitement. Now, there's a world's version of the hangover in which they have their excess and excitement and then the next morning is... Um, some of you could probably come and explain that very well. Um, I, from years ago, of course, um, but the hangover is not fun. But then there's the hangover where there's other kinds of good quality excitement, but there's a letdown after they happen. There's a thing in sports called the championship hangover where you win, you play a long season because you go all the way or the last team standing, and the next season you start off pretty slow. It's very common for that to happen because... Well, they call it the championship hangover. It's like you you played a long, hard season, and now you just got a slow start. Um, By the way, World Series is starting soon, so all you Dodger fans, good job for rooting, I mean. Not that you did anything. But we're in that season where we're going to see the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox take each other on, and there's going to be the showdown between two competing forces. One's going to win... And then once the celebration and the victory happens, there's going to be this, okay. <laughs> well, I guess we got to do it next year because that wasn't that great. And so you keep trying every year. This will be the Dodgers second attempt in two years to do it. And maybe they won't fail this time. But, um, that's the hangover. We have this moment of victory or this moment of excitement or this really good season. And then it, something about when that ends, there's this letdown and it's like, Ah, but now, now what? Now, you can't sustain championship status all your life. You just, that's not realistic. Yet, 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 yet. Sometimes the way that we live our Christian faith is we're expecting God to do the ecstatic, the exciting, some miraculous bottom of the ninth walk off home run moment in our lives every single day. And because. He isn't always doing that. You're in a great spot right now, sister. You can stay there. <laughs> but not, not, every, not everybody's getting the walk-off celebrations. And it's not always realistic that you're always... There's going to be a hangover. That's the bottom line. You're going to have a moment. So Elijah. Elijah's our prophet in this story. And he has a major miraculous moment that happens. And yet he experiences the, now that that show just happened, what do I do? And he feels depressed and he feels lost. And we're going to follow him through that journey. So, the letdown. You've been there. I know we've all been there. That holy hangover where God just, wow. And then, okay. This is kind of, nothing's happening. I don't feel like anything's going on. So, Leading up to chapter 17, um, why does Elijah come on the scene? Elijah's his prophet, a very important prophet who is going to be, a he's Hall of Fame prophet status. We're introduced to him tonight, but what's the backstory of his coming into being? So we're going to real quick catch up on what has been going on in the kingdom of Israel that Elijah the prophet steps into. So last week, we saw King Solomon who unified the 12 tribes of Israel into one solid kingdom, very prosperous, the center of the world. Everybody's coming to hear Solomon's wisdom and admire the wealth that Yahweh had given to the kingdom. But but Solomon fails in the three ways that God said, kings of Israel do not lead the way the kings of the world lead. One, they do not multiply horses for themselves. Solomon did that. They do not multiply wives for themselves, Solomon did that. And they do not multiply excessive amounts of gold and silver, Solomon did that. So Solomon leads the nation astray, he begins to incorporate idolatry into the nation, and when he dies, his son Rehoboam has not even a single ounce of his father's remaining wisdom. The people come to his son, Rehoboam, and say, Hey, your father was a bit harsh on us. He was into the whole glorious kingdom building, all these fancy buildings thing, and taxes were a bit heavy. Will you lighten it for us? And Rehoboam comes back and says, No, I'm not going to lighten the load for you. You thought my father was tough? I'm going to whip you with scorpions. And then they all said, Okay, we don't want you to rule over us then. So they pick a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam's bad news. So Jeroboam takes 10 of the tribes, the 10 of the 12, and he leads them. They're all the northern tribes, and they become known as the kingdom of Israel. Two little tribes remain left, and they hold on to Rehoboam because they want to keep to the dynasty of David. And so they follow David's grandson, Rehoboam. It's Benjamin and Judah, and they're in Jerusalem. And so this kingdom in the south becomes known as the kingdom of Judah. So from now on, you have to redefine your terms. Israel means the ten rebellious tribes. Judah means Jerusalem that has the rightful king reigning. And what we're going to see in the rest of Kings is mostly this northern kingdom, the ten rebel tribes, Israel, and the folly That they go through after bad king, after bad king, after bad king. So Jeroboam's there first. What does he do? Hmm. If Israel has to keep going down to Judah to worship God in Jerusalem, they're going to eventually say, Eh, why don't we stay with this kingdom? I need to keep my people. So I'm going to set up my own temples, and I'm going to set up idols so that we don't have to worship their God and we can be our own kingdom. What? This is Israel? Israel? Yep, they're turning their back on Yahweh completely. And what does he make? Whew, it's really good. It's really bad, but it's really creepy. Good, bad, whatever. It's um, it's chapter twelve, verse twenty-eight. So the king took counsel, twelve twenty-eight. He took counsel and he made two calves of gold. Yeah, you heard that right. The golden calf is back. And now he's back with his brother. There's two of them. So the way that Israel in the wilderness, when they left Egypt, sinned, by making the golden calf. And Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. The people gave me gold. I put it in the furnace and this thing came out. I don't know what these people are doing. That is happening again. So we're seeing now immediately these northern tribes of Israel are derailed. Jeroboam does this. Therefore, Jeroboam is going to be the standard of a bad ruler and it's just going to get worse. In chapters um, 13 and 14, we basically just see the uh, lineage go. Jeroboam, his son Nadab rules, and then Nadab is... There's a conspiracy against Nadab, and he's assassinated by Basha. So... The Jeroboam line dies after his son. Now Basha, this rebel ruler, takes the throne, and he's ruling. Basha has a son named Ella, and Ella is assassinated by Zimri. Do you see how this kingly line is going so far? And then Zimri doesn't even have his son on the throne before he is assassinated indirectly by Omri. Now Omri comes and besieges the city of Zimri, and Zimri burns down the king's house upon himself rather than being beheaded by this threatening ruler. So Omri takes the throne now. It's a really brutal beginning to the northern kingdom. Omri takes the throne. And this is what we read in chapter 16. 16 verse 25. So I just summed up for you a few chapters. Sixteen twenty-five. Omri did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and did More evil than all who were before him. So we thought it was bad. Well, Omri is a new chapter of bad. He's a new definition, a new season of a really bad guy show. And then in verse 30, he has a son who takes the throne. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. So Omri's son is twice as bad as himself. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Baal is the chief rival to Yahweh. Big time false God. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Double emphasis. Twice it said Ahab did worse than all the kings before him. This guy is bad. You know what I love, too, about the way that our narrator tells us how bad Ahabit did? They're like, yeah, he was just like Jeroboam, the guy who made two golden calves. And then it goes, as if it was too light of a thing to be as bad as Jeroboam. He had to find a way to oomph the evil. So he marries Jezebel. So Jezebel is going to be, she's going to be with us for a while. She's really, really, really bad. I don't don't know how else to do this, but like the narrator just keeps on saying, you think that was bad? This is bad. You think that was bad? This is bad. So was Omri bad? Yeah. Was Ahab bad? Oh, yeah. Was Jezebel bad? Oh, yeah. So this is where we're at. We're at a part in the story where it kind of flew through some kings and now it slows down to look in on Ahab and his evil and then it slows even more with Jezebel and she finally dies a gruesome end, which we'll get to eventually. So we're slowing down because we're now at the worst. This is the center of evil of the of the kingdom of Israel. Now, with that background in mind, enter chapter 17. Elijah, the Tishbite. He said to Ahab, so now the prophet enters. What's the narrator doing? It's really bad. It's really bleak. The prophets are going to be our light of hope. The prophets are going to be the ones who keep Yahweh's name alive. And as you're going to see, the prophets become thorns in the sides of the kings. They become that annoying reminder, that annoying alarm that won't turn off until you get out of bed and turn it off. They are that to the king. You're off God's way. And they just can't get rid of him. So Elijah says to Ahab, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, remember him, as he lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so Elijah runs and hides and there's famine in the land. And nobody likes Elijah because he made it stop raining. So this sets into motion a showdown between the king of Israel, Ahab, and the prophet of God, Elijah. They don't get along very well. So, chapter 18. By the way, chapter 17 gives you some of the cool things Elijah did. The way he sustains a widow in her hunger The king of Israel cannot provide enough food for the nation. They're in drought. But Elijah, all he has to do is say, Widow, help me with your food, and I will make sure you never run out. Elijah has power here that the king doesn't. Elijah raises her son from the dead. And then in chapter 18, Elijah and Ahab square off. 18 verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, now what's Ahab doing, by the way? He's, he's out collecting grass for his horses so that they can eat. Yeah, that's how bad it is The king's collecting weeds for his horses. And so while he's plucking the, the, the blades, he pulls one up and, uh, oh, there he is, Elijah. The one guy he didn't want to see. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. I love verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. You know why I love that so much? You see who the, who's really wearing the pants in this relationship, if you will. Elijah is telling the king what to do, and the king just says, Yes, sir, I will do that right away. There's no hesitation in Ahab here. We have demonstrated for us the narrator showing us who is really in charge of the people of God. It is not the fancy king who has all the power and wears the gold. It's the person who's giving the word of Yahweh to the people. That is who God sees is their true ruler. And here, he's making Ahab look like a buffoon by submitting to the prophet. So Ahab gathers them all to Mount Carmel. And Elijah, this is verse 21, came near to all the people and said, So remember, You've got you've got the important people of Israel here, Ahab is here, and then the prophets of Jezebel, Jezebel's God, Baal and the Asherah, all these prophets are here, and then there's just Elisha, the only prophet of Yahweh. There's a big showdown that's about to happen. I also want you to notice how Ahab completely disappears from the scene. He's here, but he's not very important. So he, Elijah, is making this speech, and he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves. And so here, he lays out how the competition is going to work. You guys are going to build an altar. And you're going to sacrifice the bull. I'm going to build an altar and I'm going to sacrifice a bull. But none of us are going to light the fire on the altar. We're going to see which God shows up and lights the altar for us. So, he lets them go first. He's friendly. You guys get the first dibs. And they, uh, verse 26, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! From morning till noon, answer us! But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And that only got them all more frantic, right? So now the acting and the antics are, the stakes are higher. They're going crazier. And so in 28, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. So first they're limping, now they're hacking. It's just getting weird until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Isn't that sad? They're doing everything they can to get Baal to notice them, and maybe we need more. And I wonder if Elijah hadn't stepped in, if they wouldn't have said, we need a human sacrifice. That'll get Baal's attention. But Elijah does step in. Verse 30. It's like, it's taking you guys all day. I mean, watch this. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Oh, thank you, we're done? Yes, they're happy to come near and watch. And all the people came near to him And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill Four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Whoa, okay, hold on. So they have this dry altar and they can't even get fire to come down and consume their offering. But be- uh, uh, Elijah says, hey, um, you know what? I want you guys to see how awesome this is. I want you to drench it all with water so that I cannot possibly be deceiving you by lighting this by some secret match I have under my coat tails or something and um, like drenched this thing. I want you to be amazed. And so he's all, he also has this moat around the altar that he dug out. And so water's coming down the altar and it's filling the moat. There's water everywhere. Well, and by the way, they're in a the drought. So whoever authorized Elijah's use of water must have a lot of respect for this prophet because they're pouring out water in the middle of a drought. And so, in verse 34, Elijah said, do it a second time. So they just continue to pour water. In 35, it says, water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Yahweh God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. I might have jumped off the mountain. I'm not sure. That would have been terrifying. And they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah took them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Got rid of uh, that blot in the kingdom of Israel. Wow, just another day in a prophet's life. (laughs) Uh, Probably not. I mean, Elijah here has the moment that makes his career as a prophet, the moment that seals his name in the Bible, the moment that makes him reappear with Moses, the other great prophet, and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels. Elijah has something happen here that forever seals his name as the crowning name of all prophets. They talk about prophets. They always say, Elijah. he is the prophet of prophets because at this moment, he does the most prophet thing a prophet can do. He makes the prophets of other gods say, yep, we give up. We're following this God. This is a prophet. This is the one who's making Yahweh revealed himself in all of his splendor. There is never going to be a day like this again for Elisha. And quite frankly... There may never have been a day like that. has been a day like this in your life. Maybe there will be. Maybe it has happened. But the reality is, there's maybe, at best, one super spectacular moment in our lives in which we cannot believe what just happened. I mean, of course, there's many times we can't believe what happened, but, but something to this extent. And I think sometimes we read the Bible and we think, wow, this happens to Elijah all the time. What's wrong with me? But here Elijah has something special happen. And you know what happens the very next day? Jezebel wants his head. You did what to my prophets? I'll show you. My cowardly husband. I'm not afraid of some little bearded prophet. So She goes after him. So in 19 verse 4, Elijah has a hangover. The great excitement, the ecstatic moment, it's never going to be the same. Because now he's hated. Now he's hunted. And in 19 4, Elijah himself, um, oh I'm sorry, Let's go to verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, here prophets, by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. Well, the courageous prophet who just talked to the king like he was his servant, who just showed down 450 prophets of Baal, who risked something he wasn't maybe sure would actually happen and doused his altar, altar with water, saw the magnificent glory of God, that prophet is now terrified because a messenger from Jezebel comes to him and says, I'm going to take your head off. <laughs> so he's afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he's now alone. He's in the other, you know, he crossed the border trying to seek protection. In verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O oh Yahweh. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Uh, come again? I mean, like, only Moses did something more spectacular than this. Part of the Red Sea, just as the exclamation point, up top of ten other plagues he sent on Egypt. Like, yeah, okay, you're not better than Moses, but I haven't read anything like this from other prophets. What do you mean? He's really down. He's really discouraged. He's really doubting everything in his life right now and he just wants to die god kill me now take me is he a baby what what is his what is his attitude here and he laid down and slept under a broom tree and behold an angel touched him and said hey hey rise eat and he looked and behold there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again And the angel of Yahweh came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey's too great for you. So here God is meeting him, saying, look, it's hard. I Get it, Elijah? It's hard. But I'm going to sustain you through this. And so in verse 8, he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Horeb is a nickname for mount sinai this is great stuff he's in the wilderness right he's in the wilderness and he is being sustained by miraculous food sounds like manna and he comes to mount sinai after 40 day journey does this not sound like israel in the wilderness after they leave egypt it does Now, whereas the kings of Israel building golden calves and have these false prophets for these false gods, they're doing the bad thing that Israel did in the wilderness, Elijah's in the wilderness in a very different sort. And he's running for his life. And he doesn't even know if he's going to live. He's asking that God takes his life and he somehow makes his way to Mount Sinai, the place where Moses, the greatest prophet, met with God. So what's going to happen? Verse 9. There came, he came to a cave and lodged in it. So he's now on Mount Sinai and he finds a cave in the mountain and he hides in there. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I... Am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by. Do you remember who he passed by before? Moses. And maybe this is the same cave. Moses. Remember, it said that Moses hid in the cleft of the rock as Yahweh passed by. Maybe this is the same spot. It's at least the same scene. Elijah is getting to see what. Moses saw same place and here he is passing by. Behold, Yahweh passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper or a still small voice or the sound of thin and quiet, different translations there for you, And when Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. Remember what the prophets of Baal were doing? They were crying out in all their antics. They were putting on a show that would have made anybody stop to watch. And yet it said not even a voice responded Baal did not utter a voice for them. And yet here is Elisha, and the voice comes. There came to him a voice and said, Again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah again answers, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now that's way up above the northern kingdom of Israel. He's going up through all the kingdom to Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael the king of the, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Molah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Oh, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay. Moment of great victory. Elisha defeated the prophets of Baal. Now he's in a hangover. Life will never be this great. I was on a high. It was really exciting. And now everybody hates me. You've done that thing, right? You invested all of your energy, all of your vision, all of your love and devotion, and you thought, this is going to change that person's life. They're going to be so grateful, or this is going to change this group of people, or I'm going to, I was brave enough to volunteer to do the Bible study, and what I'm going to say is just going to make people weep and come to Jesus, and there's going to be great repentance. Like We have these visions and these efforts, and we go out and we say, this is going to happen, and we feel like we do it. We accomplish it. Through God's might, we are able to do something. And then we look around like, Nothing changed. Everyone's going on their normal life like nothing spectacular. I saw the heavens open and the glory of God shone upon everyone. You're like, but nobody else seemed to notice or care. Church is over and everyone's like, yeah, the manager should have pulled the pitcher in the fifth inning. What? Did you miss what happened here? We feel that, don't we? Haven't you gone out and tried something? Maybe it was just in, even in your business or your, your job. You tried something. You just felt like everybody overlooked it. Nobody cared. And there's this hope that's snapped. And there's this disappointment. And there's this letdown. And that's the hangover. And that's where Elijah is. Ah, It made no difference. We want fireworks every day. But the problem is, is that fire doesn't always work. The wind howls and rips the rocks. The earth shakes. The fire roars. And in none of those things did Elijah hear God. But that's that's, that's how we live. We keep saying looking for the fireworks, God. I'm looking for the spectacular. I'm looking for defeating the prophets of Baal again. I'm looking. And every day that we are setting that to be the expectation, we're missing God in the common. And we're overlooking him in our neighbor and in the person that needed just a little bit of love or a hug or a moment of our time. We're missing him in the little things. The big things can happen. They will happen. But we cannot wake up every day saying, well, God isn't doing this. He just must not be here. Look, fireworks are great. We want fireworks, but fire doesn't always work. That's not how God always moves. Sometimes it's the subtle. Sometimes it's a a strange prophet from Nazareth who's telling these weird stories that nobody understands, who gets crucified. That doesn't get chalked up to something spectacular until he rises from the dead. But man, you could have missed it. In fact, everybody in Israel did miss it because he didn't come on the white horse. They were looking for fireworks. But God didn't choose to work through fire. He chose to work through something subtle, mundane, ordinary. And this is what Elisha realizes in his hangover. And this is where God wants to meet us in these moments. He wants to say, stop looking To the fire, the wind, the earthquake, the remarkable, the earth-shattering. And just pause and listen to the still, small voice. And I love how the Common English Bible translates it. It says, a sound, thin, quiet. It's something that could be missed if you're not looking carefully or listening carefully. And that's where the powerful punch lies, is there in the stillness when we're able to just hear that God is near. He's right here. We're not looking for the world to split apart. Oh, now he's here. Elisha is able to slow down. And this is now where he's tapping into the true calling of a prophet to hear God's voice to hear his voice and to do what that voice says and to communicate that voice to the people. And so sometimes, brothers and sisters, we're going to have these great moments of victory and then there's going to be the hangover because in that moment, God wants to take you deeper and further. There's a the kind of way that we can live where we're just junkies for the thrill and we continually look for the big explosion. But then there's a Christian who realizes that can be gimmick tree, gimmick... Tree gimmicks. Um, and I'm now going to be led somewhere different. Somewhere where past all the hoopla, I'm going to hear the voice of God behind and underneath everything else in life. So that even in the wind of an autumn tree, can I find the presence of God? Even in the look of somebody I run into in the grocery store who I don't know from Adam, but is dancing to the music over the speakers and is smiling at you saying, isn't life great? There was God. Yet sometimes we're too busy because that was an evangelism moment. We're too busy to recognize that God was there with us. That God was in the wind of the tree. That God was in the hug of a little kid. That God was in that phone call. That God was in the person that rubbed your shoulders the wrong way. And two weeks later you learn that just by stopping to talk to them you changed their week that God is in the person whom you had to look at who let you down and made you really upset and you just on the spur of the moment said, I appreciate you, brought them to tears, that is where God is. In these little things that happen every day. If we're willing to stop waiting for the fireworks show and to realize that there's a still, small voice whispering for those who slow down and turn the volume off long enough to catch even a word of what's being said. Elijah has lots of time to listen. And sometimes that's why we go through hangovers. It's because God's saying, look, I need you to just have enough time to actually listen to me. I'll bring you to something great later. But it's time to find the sacred in the ordinary. And so Elijah does. Now, I think for us, there's a question of how many victories do you, and how many victories do I need? How many victories do we need? We can we can um, live this Christian life in a sense of win and lose, right? I'm gonna do this for God. I'm gonna win. We're gonna win. God's gonna win, and everyone else is gonna lose. And and the false religions are gonna lose. And and we're gonna gain people for us. And and these people that reject, well, hell's like where losers go. And like we can get this mentality of win and lose, win and lose. And these doctrines, uh, we're gonna pick the right, true doctrine. We're gonna win, and we're gonna argue that doctrine. And like apologetics can get like that. Some of you are into it. Some of you are not. And get it. Like it can become a win and lose kind of thing. We can go through life with a. We're here to win. We're conquerors. But but, but my question is, how many victories do you need until you realize that you're already a winner? Elijah had one victory, and then he felt like a loser after that. But you know what he learned from the still small voice? He learned, hey, my people are already winners. How many victories do you need before you realize that God already fought the one battle and won it? Jesus fought the battle on the cross and won. The resurrection said. Why do we have to go around continually seeking another battle to win? Another battle to win. As if our self-esteem depended upon my winning more battles. It doesn't, brothers and sisters, we may live the majority of our spiritual life in the so-called holy hangover. Coined by me, yours truly. Truly. We may live the majority of our lives there. But if that's what we need to learn, that the Christian is not valued upon his victories, but upon the victory of Christ, then so be it. Because these hangovers are the place where we learn to lose. And Elijah learns to lose his need to show a magic trick every time people are before him. He does not have to replicate defeating the prophets of Baal every time. And this is so important because we have these moments with God and we feel like we have to just keep that high going. And if somehow that fades, I'm doing something wrong. I'm backsliding. Why has God abandoned me? No, 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 no. You're just missing it. God gives us those little, little, those little glimpses of victories, big victories, but little moments of them so that we are reminded that He's already won for us. Here's a vision of what forever looks like. Now let's go through the humdrum of life and continually learning how to lose. Losing our need and our addiction for the spectacular, our need and our addiction for the big audience, our need and addiction for the everybody's doing what I'm doing. We don't have to have America follow Jesus to be better. If we are the, let's just say, this is not all I'm saying, but let's just say the, what, 100 or so of us in here are the only Christians left. I'm not saying we're the only true church. Do not go quote me on that. But let's just pretend for a minute. We're it. We're hiding in the the cave of Mount uh, Horeb, Mount Sinai, and we're saying, we're the only ones, God, why? Even if we were it, does that make us less true? Do we need to have half the country converted to feel better about our faith? Do we have to win, win, win? And we want to. It would be great to see the country follow God. But do we have to? So then why, are we, why do we expend our energy and our, our own experience with God upon this? I need the wow and, 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 and I feel like I'm failing. Wait, Jesus felt like he was failing too. On the cross, he felt abandoned by the, God, by the Father. He said, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? Sometimes it is like that. But we can't say I did something wrong. God's abandoned me. Because he's speaking 99% of the time. I made that up. But it's, it's the majority of the time. He's speaking in the still, small voice. With the occasional firework. You know, when you're waiting on the lake for the 4th of July to start. It's getting dark it was antsy because everyone had to get there like five hours early to find a spot and and then there's a one firework and like oh everyone be quiet starting and it's just the test oh, okay we're waiting for that like big bang not the scientific one but the the firework show we're waiting for those and then there's just that one it's, it's almost like that's what god's doing saying hey I'm going to give you experiences trickled throughout your life so that you know what's to come. But do not become addicted to that all the time. Because I'm going to keep you guys firmly rooted on earth while your destination's in heaven so that you can talk to people and be real with people. Because Jesus came as a person to be with people and nobody looked at him and said, what are you, an alien? He was relatable. He was a human. So how many victories do we need? My friends, Elijah learned and we can learn. Just one. And Jesus already gave it to us. So we don't have to go out sharpening our swords all the time to win. We go out listening for the voice of the Spirit of God to lead us into the everyday encounters he has around us. And sometimes it's going to feel like nothing. You're not lost. Elijah felt lost, but he was right where he needed to be. Mount Sinai, that's where you are in your hangover. You're at Mount Sinai. So just shut up. I mean that lovingly. And sit down and listen. Let the wind pass, the fire pass, the earthquake pass. Because when you finally let those things pass and you stop fixating on them and following them and letting your mind wander about how I'm the only one, when you finally get past all those thoughts, you will hear God's voice. we got to slow down. But if I slow down, I won't win. yeah. Hey, you're not hearing me, are you? The victory is already made. We already won. Slow down. Listen to his voice. Because my friends, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is the one who embodies the spoken word of God. Jesus was a prophet. He embodied the word of God. Elijah is a prophet. He embodies the word of God. Now, we shouldn't be titling people prophet. That's really risky and dangerous because then we're going to think that they are God. But each and every one of us are collectively the prophet of God on this earth. Because we're embodying his word to the nations, to the neighbors. We don't go around saying, thus says the Lord, you need a new car or something like that. That's, that's berserk. But we go around and we're embodying the way of the kingdom of God. We are therefore his messengers. But we cannot, we cannot be that. If we're not hearing his voice and if all we're doing is going to experience after experience to try to be filled up with this high of God, we're never going to embody his word. So um, the cure for your hangover is a Passover. The cure for your hangover is a Passover. Passover. Elijah goes through the whole Passover, doesn't he? The Passover set Israel out from Egypt. So what does he do? He goes into the wilderness. He goes to Mount Sinai, and there, just like Moses sees God, hears more properly God on the mountain. He's gone through his own Passover. This is, and then what does God tell him to do after this? He tells him to do three things. You're to go anoint a foreign king. You're to go anoint a new king for Israel, and you're to go and choose your successor. There it is, friends. The Passover is about us embodying the word of God more than it is about us fighting for victories. Because when we do, we will then find people to pass on what God has given us toward. What if Elijah left and said, all right, whatever. I'm going to go find more prophets to defeat, more mountains to set on fire, more spectacular fireworks to display. What if he went out and did that? He would never have selected Elisha as his successor, who we will see in the coming weeks is going to be even greater than Elijah. We have our hangovers, but guess what? Maybe that's also God saying it's time to pass over what you know, pass over what you experienced, pass over your Mount Carmel to the next person because I want them now to rise up and defeat the prophets of Baal and then they will pass that over. Maybe that's what we need to be doing. Maybe maybe you're sitting and going, I don't know, is this it? God, take me now. My life's over. It's all done. The greatest works I've ever done are behind me. I'm on the downside of my prime. Maybe that's our thought. Maybe what God is saying, if we stop and listen to a still small voice, is, hey, pass it on. Pass it on. Yeah, you may not be the one climbing Mount Carmel and winning victories anymore. Someone else is going to do it. Let's pass it on. So what does he do next? Right after this, in verse 19, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shephat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. That means he's really rich. And he was with the 12th. Elisha passed by him. Ooh, see that? Passed over. It's kind of like the Passover. He's like, I'm going. Elisha passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Here, pass it on. The cloak of the prophet he puts on Elisha's shoulders. And Elisha, a little something happens there. He makes a sacrifice, but then he follows Elijah. And we have now the next prophet to come. Brothers and sisters, the holy hangover might be rough at first, but then we realize what's going on and God wants us to stop trying to ignite fireworks and to start passing on the things he's taught us to other people. But you cannot pass it on until we've sat and listened to that sound, thin and quiet, The still, small voice. This is what we need to be teaching new Christians and the new generation. Not how to organize campaigns of victory, but how to listen to the voice of God. These disciplines of sitting, fasting, reading scripture, praying in silence, praying with requests. These disciplines are lost in our modern age. And we need people, we need Elijah's who hear the voice of God, embody it, and pass it on to others. That, that is what it looks like to be a real prophet of God. And that's what it looks like to have more power than even kings of the earth have. So Father, we thank you for the great miraculous things you do in our life.